what an honor it's been uh, to be with you. And I'm, I'm just, I mean, I've, I've loved Matt for years and years and years and think so highly of him and have just really grown to love this church and uh, the, or these churches, I guess I should say, that in a lot of ways are like uh, Baptist networks and uh, associations have been in the past where pastors meet together and churches meet together and uh, have a common uh, vision and purpose and, and carry out this work uh, with one another. And um, I want to I want to bring our time together, maybe maybe tie up a few loose ends, uh, put a bow on a couple of things and um, leave you with something as you go uh, today. You, you have been very, very patient. Uh, thank you for uh, for listening. I hope it's been an encouragement to you in some way. Um, you know, like Matt said earlier, it may be, okay, so we, we've got three talks, and hopefully there's one thing maybe that, that you've been able to take with you, and um, more than anything, I hope you've uh, heard the story of God's work and good work in Jesus, um, because that's the story that we want to tell. Whatever, whatever else we go through, whatever else we endure, um, that's, the, that's the one message we want to continue to come back to. So, um, for this last session, um, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture uh, in the book of Romans, chapter 8. Um, and again, not necessarily an exposition, but there are some things that are in this passage that I think help us as we think through this question of the, the context of suffering. So on uh, last night, we talked about the, the cause of suffering, right? And, and not the cause of your particular experience of suffering necessarily or mine at any given time. Um, but, but what are the reasons why we're so terribly disappointed um, with the way that, that life has uh, fed us uh, the experiences that we have? And um, why is it that being out of control of things uh, causes us to have anxiety and fear? And how does that fear uh, compound the pain and suffering that we endure. And more than anything, what we hoped uh, to talk about last night was uh, that um, in the midst of whatever circumstances we find ourselves, that God remains present with us and that God cares for us and loves us and has um, a, a purpose for us, not focused on a purpose for our experience. And this is, this is one of the important um, aspects to our learning how to suffer well as Christians is that we don't focus on the suffering um, because in doing so we give we give power to the suffering as it were instead of our focus on God and his good work and acknowledging him as the one to whom we ascribe all power and glory and majesty etc let's not uh, ascribe glory majesty and power to our experiences Let's not let them have the power. Let's ascribe that glory and power uh, to him uh, because he is, he is so well worth it. So in terms of the context of our suffering, the real question that we're asking ourselves is um, where is it that we're suffering? So we know we're going to suffer. So let's look at the various contexts within which our suffering is going to take place so that we can recognize the presence of God in each one of those contexts. So we, we started with this question of where is God when, when I'm suffering? Where is God in, the, in these dark moments? And we might be tempted to think that in those dark moments, God is off someplace safe from our suffering. Right? We think, well, you know, God is up in heaven somewhere. And so he's over there where things are good and safe and fun, and he's you know, floating down the streets of gold or whatever. And so God is in the safe place, and I'm down here in the dangerous place. But that's not the case. God is present with us in whatever context we find ourselves. And so in each one of these contexts, we want to look at them from the vantage point of what does it mean for God to be present uh, there? And so in Romans chapter 8, we have kind of this long story where Paul is talking about suffering, and it's following his statement about God's promise to us of a life of peace, that by knowing Jesus, we have peace. Now, this peace is obviously a peace with God, right? We have 
we have a right relationship with him. But that's not what Paul is talking about in Romans 8. It's not that we have just peace with God. That is true. But it's a life of peace that Paul is trying to help us to understand how we can live. And so what is it that, that we can recognize that in the various contexts of our lives, we can have the kind of peace that God wants us to have? And so peace is contrasted in the Bible with anxiety and burden, right? So if you take anxiety and burden on the one hand and peace on the other, what does God desire for us? He doesn't desire burden and anxiety. God desires for us peace, the absence of that kind of burden and the absence of that kind of anxiety. And he promises to us that the key to our not being burdened is his presence. And the key to our not being anxious, fearful, is his presence. And so we want to begin to kind of focus on that. So where is it that we live in the presence of God so that we can have a life of peace? Where is it that we live? And so I'm going to give you kind of three contexts, if you will. First of all, we live in a fallen world. So the first context in which we're going to suffer is a fallen world. Now, why is the notion of a fallen world important? Um, because as we've kind of highlighted over the last two days, God is moving us toward his intended end for the world. That we're not in God's good world yet, right? We're in a world that's, that's fallen, that's absent the ultimate end that God intends, but is not absent God. So we should recognize that despite the fact that the world we live in is fallen, that God, when we consider the incarnation the notion of incarnation, that God has come to reside within this fallen world. Now, I know that sometimes that's, that's different than the way that we can think about things uh, oftentimes as Christians. We can sometimes think that God only wants to live in the safe space. He wants to live where things are good. And we have this idea that God is so holy and he is so majestic and he is so righteous that, that God just can't even look at sin, much less be around sin. But the Bible tells us that God became sin for us. God is not scared of the fallen world that we live in. In fact, it's just the opposite, that God rushes into the fallen world because people are trapped within it. You see, the whole doctrine of creation that you and I have as Christians is that God made human beings for right relationship with himself. There's no chance that God would leave us in this fallen world without racing to our rescue. Right? God's love for human beings is not predicated on our being right or our being good. It's predicated on our being his created beings whom he made for the purpose of knowing him. There's a story in the Bible that you're probably familiar with, but you may not see it quite in this same way, and it's the story of Abraham and Hagar. You remember the story of Abraham? God came to Abram, as he was known at the time, and said that I'm going to make you a father of, great, of a great number of people. Like, and what he's talking about is you, by the way, so you're, you're one of Abraham's children. And so God's promising, one day I'm going, to bring, I'm going to bring about these people at Christ Fellowship. They're, they're going to be there. And so God makes that promise to Abram, but he misunderstands the promise. He thinks that what God was telling him was that he was going to have a baby, which is not what God was telling him. Um, and so he said, well, my wife can't have a baby, and since the goal is to have a baby, I, I'll find someone who can. And so he goes to one of his... Um, uh, wife's maidservants, uh, an Egyptian named Hagar, and he goes into her and she conceives and she has a baby, Ishmael. And Abram is like, great, God's uh, work is done here. <laughs> and God's like, what are you talking about? That's not what I have in mind. I'm, I'm talking about me providing for you descendants, not you providing for you descendants. It, it's a picture already of the life that God wants us to live in preparation for suffering. God promises us this ultimate end that he will bring to us, not that we will bring to ourselves. So as the story goes on, after uh, Ishmael grows up, he's about 13 years old at the time, where he begins to have conflict with Sarah's child, all right? You remember the story of Isaac being born. 
And this conflict ensues, and as a result of the conflict, Sarah sends Hagar away. She kicks her and her 13-year-old son out of their house. Now, so if you want to think about suffering, see, we, we rarely think of Hagar and Ishmael, the story of Hagar and Ishmael as suffering, but it's precisely the point of the story. That Hagar and Ishmael, a single mom with her 13-year-old son, get kicked out of the house with no way to survive, no way to make money, no way to get food, no way to work, and they're sent out into the wilderness. It's, it's, a, it's a terrible decision that Abraham and Sarah made. It was awful. And they get sent out, and as they're wandering around in the wilderness with no food and no water and no way to live, Ishmael begins to die. And the Bible tells us that Ishmael is sitting under a tree and Hagar is sitting under a tree and she's watching her 13-year-old son die before her eyes. It's terrible. And she's in the wilderness, which in the Bible represents this fallen world that you and I live in. And she's suffering terribly at that moment. The Bible tells us that God shows up. And... She gives God a name. Do you remember what that name is? The name is the God who sees. The God who sees. And that story, the story of Abraham and Hagar and Ishmael, is a story that's meant to help us recognize that even when we move out into the wilderness, when Adam and Eve are exiled into the wilderness, when uh, uh, Hagar and and Ishmael are cast away out into the wilderness, and when you and I go out into the wilderness, the hope is not that we will find a way to live there, but that God will see. And so he does. He sees Ishmael, and he comes, and he says, I'm going to rescue him, and I'm going to protect him, and he's going to be okay, and I'm going to give him a multitude of descendants as well. God fulfills a promise to Hagar and to Ishmael by caring for them. And that's what God does as he enters into a fallen world to be present, to see us in the midst of the fallen world. He doesn't live up in heaven where it's safe. He comes with us. He doesn't live in in Abraham's house where it's safe. He doesn't live in the Garden of Eden where it's safe. He comes out into the wilderness in order to be present. Because he sees. Who does he see? He sees people. This is who he sees. You. When you enter into suffering, you should recognize, yes, we're in a terrible place. We're in an awful place where people get sick and where people die and where people hurt one another and they persecute one another and where families break up and there are a whole host of ways in which we suffer. But know this, that God sees in the midst of them. So this fallen world where God sees, we see here in Romans chapter 8, a couple of things about that fallen world. First of all, we see that that fallen world is that this fallen world is a dangerous place. Look, if you will, in verses 19 and 20. So he says here in verse 19, the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's children to be revealed. So creation, the world that we live in, this world eagerly awaits for that ultimate end. See, here's the thing. Even the fallen world that we live in is looking forward to God completing His purposes in you. Isn't that amazing? That when you you go out in the world, you think the world's a terrible place, but the world that is a terrible place, a dangerous place, is waiting on God to complete His work in your life. In fact, Peter tells us that we should be glad that suffering persists for now because it gives us time to know Jesus. God's doing his great work. And creation is longing for this in verse 20. And creation was, this creation was subjected to futility. Futility. What this means, what what Romans 8.20 means for us is that the world in which we live in is a world where futility reigns. That you can try your best and you can work your hardest and still fail. That the smartest aren't the ones who always succeed. And that the hardest worker is not the one who always gets through. That good things don't happen to good people, as it were. 
You see, the, there are plenty of people who look at the universe and hope that the universe will show them good things. But the universe is a futile place. If you're relying on the universe to take care of you, you're going to fail. You're going to be sorely, sorely disappointed. It's a futile place. It's a, it's a dangerous place where we live. We have to recognize that this world, the creation in which we're in right now, is one that is not what God wants for us to be, for us to know. He's not the, it's not the place where God wants us to ultimately live. It's a place we're passing through, a dangerous place that we're passing through, where we suffer from this same futility of life. But it's the futility we see at the end of verse 20 that nonetheless is a futility that's faced with hope. So it may be a dangerous place, but it's not a hopeless place. There's a difference between facing danger and facing hopelessness. And we need to recognize that as Christians, that the context where you and I live may be a very, very dangerous place to live, and there's suffering here, and there's hurt, and there's pain that comes along, but there is hope in the midst of that. We're not in hell. As much as it might feel like it from time to time, we're not in hell where there is no hope. We're in a fallen world, but we're not in a hopeless world. And so please don't fall victim to hopelessness, where there's a sense in which God is done working. It's tough to think about God working in our lives. It's hard enough to think about God working on our lives. But the worst thing that we could consider is that God would stop working on us, and that we would move from just living in a, in a futile world where it's quite dangerous to a world that's, that's hopeless. And so we can have hope in the midst of this. So it's not only that we live in a, a fallen world that's dangerous, but in verse 21, we see that this world that we live in is a decaying world. Look at what happens here. This is the notion of flesh in verse 21. The creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. I love the way that Paul puts this, right? So he, he tells us earlier in the first 10 verses of the chapter that uh, we live in the flesh, and that, that's what our body is. That our body is, is made out of, it's like the jar of clay that we talked about earlier. It's made out of flesh, and that means it's not going to last forever. That fleshly things don't last forever, that they eventually decay and they die, and that's just the world that we live in and the lives that we happen to live. Now, you have to think about the decaying world for a moment as being a good thing. If it's going to decay, and it's a world that's dangerous, that could be a good thing. That's where there's hope. One day, the dangerous world will be gone. It will be over. But the fact of the matter is, it will be over. And so the flesh in which we live right now, the good news is it's going to be gone, but the bad news is it's going to be gone. That we have to live in the flesh until that time comes. And so we're living in a body that's already decaying. From the moment we're born, we're dying. We, there's not like there's a, there's a climax in our lives. We don't have a real midlife. You may have a midlife crisis, but you don't have a midlife where you, you're growing and everything's improving and improving and improving, and now it starts declining and declining. It, it just feels that way. Right? Because there are times when you feel stronger and, and better. Some of you, you know, look around and you're at an age where it's like, man, I bet you really feel good. And, you know, then you get to the point where you roll out of bed and it's like, I'll never walk normally again because I slept wrongly or whatever. I mean, it's just the way it happens. If I broke something today, it just stays broke. You know what I mean? It's, there, there was a time I could eat like a dozen bags of Oreos and lose five pounds. And now I walk by the pantry and I, you know, gain a pound and a half or whatever. And I'm like, Ginger, what's in the, the pantry? It's, it's tough. But understand that from the moment we're born, we're dying. We're decaying from that moment. And so to understand the world we live in is one that's a decaying world, it can be depressing for us to think about that. But only if we focus on the decay. Right? It's only depressing to think about a world that's decaying if we focus on the decaying. If you're always thinking, oh, I'm going to die one day, why well, live now? You'll never live. You'll never have hope. Instead of focusing on what's going to happen in the future, focus on what is happening right now. You're alive. And you're living within a decaying world, in a decaying body, 
in the presence of a God who isn't. He's not decaying. He's eternal. He's lasting. And so live in his presence right now despite the fact that you have this decaying body. So the world that we live in, this fallen world, is a world that's decaying and it's a world that's dangerous. It's a, it's a tough place for us to live. And so we should recognize it's that context. But in that decaying and dangerous world, God is present. In other words, God didn't send you to live in a dangerous place and wait on you at the finish line. I think sometimes as Christians, we can treat it that way, right? We, we treat it as though God sends us out into danger and just hopes we make it. There are religions that teach that. The Latter-day Saints teach that. That what God did was to take his children, blind them to the reality that they were his kids, and cast them down into a dangerous world and hope they made it. That's not our God. Our God has not done that. He has seen us in the wilderness, in a dangerous and decaying place, and he has come to us. God is not afraid of the dangers that you and I face. When my kids were little, they were afraid of the dark. Because their dad continues to be afraid of the dark, when they were afraid, their mom would go in there to help them. I don't like the dark a whole lot. I go outside and I, I get scared. And, you know, I'm scared of the dark. I'm scared of snakes. I'm scared of flying. I mean, they're like, I'm just always, I'm a basket case. You know? There are all sorts of things that scare us. There are things that scare my kids. But as a dad, I walk into places where I might be afraid so that they won't be. And that's what our God does for us. He's not afraid of any of those places. And he walks into the darkness where we are. And he walks into the dangers where we find ourselves. And he joins us in the midst of them. While the context of our suffering is this fallen world, it is not a world where we are isolated from God. And we have to remember that fact. If we think that God is so holy that he can't be around sin and suffering. We have the wrong conception of God. Islam, for example, teaches that God is so holy that he can't come into our world. That's why he has to stay off somewhere and they can't know him. He's an unknowable God and he just he throws the book of rules over to people to follow. But if the doctrine of the incarnation, if the story of, of Jesus tells us anything, it is that God is present in our fallen world. He even not only comes into our fallen world, but he takes on a decaying body himself. <laughs> he doesn't come in as Superman. He takes on our humanity. He takes on our flesh so that he can not only be present with us in the dangerous world, but he can, and this is so vitally important, suffer with us. You see, our God, while he is beyond suffering, has chosen to suffer, that he might be with us in the midst of it. You see, God isn't just sympathetic toward us in our pain. He shares our pain with us. It's what the book of Hebrews means when it says that he has become in all ways like us, but he doesn't sin. He is in all ways like us. It doesn't just mean like physically he is always like us. He has two arms and two legs and two ears and that sort of thing. It, it means that in every experience that we have in suffering, he has come to share in that. There's no suffering that you know that he hasn't known. There's no hurt that you know that he has not known, that he has not felt, that he has not experienced. And he did that so that he might overcome that suffering for you. And so when God comes to you and says, I understand, he means it. There's some of you that have been through pain and hurt. That if I came to you and said, I understand what you're going through, it wouldn't be true. I don't know what it means to endure some of what you have endured. And thankfully, we have a God who does know that. And so the context where we suffer is a fallen world, but the Bible tells us that this fallen, dangerous, decaying place, the wilderness, is a place where God is not absent. 
that he has come into it, that he is present in this world with us. The second context where we suffer is we suffer with a faithful people. A faithful people. So not just the the world that we live in is a place where we know God, but the church is the place where we know God's presence. It's a place where we suffer in the midst of this. Look in verse 15. Verse 15, we see this. Spirit himself testifies, excuse me, verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. So what does this mean? The people of faith, the the community, the church, are those people who are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we suffer in this fallen world, but we also suffer together with, with a faithful people. We're sons and daughters of God, but we're sons and daughters of God together. And we have to learn how to suffer with each other, bearing one another's burdens, but giving our burdens to others to be shared and to be born along with us. You see, the family that we are as the people of God is, is not a family where we just have some, some demographic similarities. And we just happen to live in proximity to each other and we show up on Sunday morning at the same place at the same time and we sing the same songs and listen to the same talk from the front of the room. We truly are brothers and sisters in Christ because we are sons and daughters of God. And so God is present not just in the world we live in by having come and shared our burden but he is also present with us through his people, the people whom we have been born together into. This is, the, this is the family that we now enjoy. And so we have to learn in our suffering to live as the children of God, to be the children of God within this, within this experience that we're having, within this suffering that we're undergoing right now, so that we can release our suffering to other people who are around us. Now, this can be hard for us sometimes. It can be a challenge that our pain and suffering, we oftentimes don't want to give that to someone else. Not because we're, not because we're afraid that they may be hurt by it, but that we're afraid that it may lessen its impact in our lives. I see it happen all of the time where we want to hold on to our suffering so much that we refuse to be brothers and sisters with others. But there is good news for us that one of the reasons why we have this family of faith, the church, the people of God, is that we would know the presence of God through our common suffering. When Paul is writing here in Romans 8, he's not saying we're all doing great and one of you is doing poorly and so the church is here to help you out. He's saying that the people of God are here to hurt with one another. I mean, when you come together as the people of God, you come to say, we're going to share in each other's suffering. And that means I'm going to take yours and you're going to take mine and we're going to bear this burden with one another. So to be the children of God is, is to know the blessing of God's presence, but even more importantly, to know the blessing of God's presence together. And it's that togetherness, that sense of community, having things in common that allows us to come together and, for example, eat of the flesh and drink of the blood of Christ. Have you ever considered how important the Lord's Supper or communion is to our suffering? You see, we've made it antiseptic, right? I mean, we, you know, we get the nice, you may even have the little, where you, know, you pop the, the cup open, you know, and it's like the lunchable version of the Lord's Supper a lot of people have been doing. We don't think about death and suffering when it comes to the Lord's Supper. But remember, in 1 Corinthians 11, we're told that every time we come together to share in the Lord's Supper, we proclaim Christ's death until he comes again. But we've made the death of Jesus something that's so distant from us that it has no real bearing on our own suffering. 
We've made it as though it's a spiritual exercise that's far off somewhere. It's a, it's a mystical event that has happened. But when we think about the death of Christ, it is a death in which you and I share. And so we share in the Lord's Supper with each other in order to bear one another's burdens, to remind ourselves constantly that you and I are the product of suffering. We're not just those who suffer. We've been formed through the suffering of Jesus, the suffering of another. And so our sharing in the Lord's Supper, while it's a happy occasion, it's only a happy occasion because we know that the suffering leads to glory. But if we leave out the suffering and we only focus on the glory, then we miss the process or the means by which God makes us into what He wants us to be. To be the children of God means that we join in suffering together so that we might know glory together as well. And that's the second part of this. It's not just that uh, as the people of God, we know God's presence and we're suffering together as children, but we also are suffering together as those who are heirs of God's kingdom. Look at verse 17. Right? So this spirit testifies together in verse 16 that our spirit, that, that with our spirit we are God's children. And if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed, look at this, we suffer with Him so that we also may be glorified with Him. Here's the good news. The good news is that we are heirs of all that Jesus knows and all that Jesus has. The glory that is His. You remember in the, the story of the Mount of Transfiguration where he's, he's transformed into His glory? That's what you're an heir of. When Jesus is raised up from the dead, and now his body will never die again, and there's no more pain, and there's no more suffering, and there's no more tears. That's what you inherit. That is yours. And when we come together as the people of God, we not only celebrate the suffering that will lead to glory, but we celebrate the glory of which we are heirs. It will one day be yours, and you will know that. And so when God comes to be present with us in the church, it is not just to feel sorry for us in our hurting. It is to carry us through our pain and our suffering to the glory that's on the other side of it. But if we lose sight of glory and all we consider is the suffering, then we'll be overwhelmed by the suffering. But if we think we can find the glory without the suffering, we miss the glory. We miss the glory. It's not only that Christ has come to suffer with us, but we have the privilege of, of suffering with Him in death. Dying to self so that we can live to Christ. And by sharing in His suffering, as He shares with us in our suffering, we know His glory. The glory that He has known from all of eternity and He has made possible and made available now to us and made it possible that we could know it as well. And so understand that when you suffer, God has given you the church, the people of God, as the place where you can know His presence. Where you can know His presence. Sometimes people suffer and they feel like, I'm alone. I'm nowhere, I'm nowhere near God. I don't know where God is. I can't fi find God anywhere. But God makes His presence known through His people. When our family was, was going through what we were going through, I joked earlier about how sometimes I didn't want people around because it could, be a, it could be a bother. But as people made themselves present in our lives, it was the greatest source of hope. Because those people in and of themselves were a reminder to me constantly that there is more that's available to me than I could ever imagine. They were a reminder of the promise of God's presence and of God's glory. <laughs> and so give yourself over to the church in your suffering and give yourself over to sufferers as the church because you become the presence of God in the lives of others who are suffering. The Spirit of God dwells within His church, within His people. Don't you know that you, the church, are the temple of the Holy Spirit? And so be the people of God for those who suffer. And find the presence of God in your own suffering through His people. So we 
the context in which we suffer, the world that we live in, but God is present here. The church in which we operate and live, and God is present here as well. And then finally, in your own life. It's a forgiven life where we suffer as well. Know that as a Christian, your suffering is not absolved from you because you became a believer. Right? I think sometimes what happens is we, if we aren't careful, we think that once I become a Christian, all the problems go away. And there are people who think if I'll become a Christian, all my problems will go away. And they, they're experiencing something difficult in their life, and they say, I need to find a place where there's hope, so I'm going to go to church, which is the right place to go. And they show up looking for hope, but the hope that they have in mind is a hope that just takes care of all their problems, resolves all their conflicts. But that's not what the gospel does. The gospel doesn't offer us immediate help. It offers us ultimate hope. And as we give our lives over to Christ, and He comes and joins us in the midst of our suffering, and He brings us together with the people of God that we might suffer, He guides us, walks with us, He leads us toward this ultimate end. Notice what we have in verse 23. Verse 23 says this, so in verse 22, let's start there. We know that the whole of creation has been groaning together. So this is this, the labor pains that we talked about, the groaning of creation, longing for the ultimate end. But not only that. So it's not just that this world is a, a futile world, a dangerous place that's groaning towards some ultimate end. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we groan within ourselves waiting for adoption, the redemption of our body. So here's your, here's your Christian life. Your Christian life, when you suffer, is a calling out for your ultimate redemption. In, in one sense, the groaning that comes with suffering is a recognition that God is at work in your life. <laughs> it, it's, not, it's not the impediment to God working in your life. It's the recognition that God is working in your life. I remember when oftentimes um, my wife in particular would break down when people were around. And she'd say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Because she didn't want to give the wrong impression, like, I'm, you know, I'm not strong enough to, to do this. And the realization that she had was this, that the groaning, the weeping, the grieving is not a problem that has to be solved. It's not a dilemma that has to be resolved. The groaning, the grieving, the weeping, the mourning is the means by which we acknowledge that God and God alone is our only hope. And so to know Jesus Christ is to know the one who is our hope through suffering to glory. Not the resolution of suffering, but the one who walks with us through it. And so to be a Christian doesn't mean that our problems go away. It is that the Spirit comes to dwell within us, that we know His presence by His Spirit, not just His presence in our world by His incarnation and His presence in the church, but His presence in our own lives by means of the Spirit, that we have the Spirit within us as the first fruits, eagerly awaiting the redemption of our bodies. And so the next time that you suffer, recognize the Spirit not only dwells within you, but dwells with you in your suffering. <laughs> so it's not just that God understands your suffering, it's that He's present in you in your suffering. You may know someone who's suffering, and you can come alongside them, and you can hug them, and you can say, I love you, and you can embrace them, and you can encourage them, but you can't really know their suffering. But God knows yours. Not just because he became incarnate in Jesus, but because God the Spirit dwells within you and is suffering with you right this very moment. He's in, enduring this suffering with you, and he's leading you toward the ultimate redemption of your body. Your pain, your hurt, your sorrow, your grief, he knows. Because he dwells within you. He doesn't leave you by yourself in the midst of that suffering. 
We also know in this life of redemption, this life of salvation, this forgiven life, we know as well the justice of God. Look in verse 31. The justice of God. You see, we sometimes fail to recognize that our resistance to pain and suffering is meant to coincide with our desire for things to be right, for things to be just. God is a just God. So look in verse 31. He says this. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for, that's the suffering. What are we to say when we suffer? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave himself up for us all. How will he not also then grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. In other words, what he's saying is, God has done everything that he has done on your behalf, not his own behalf. You see, you think, well, God works to save us for his own glory. Well, he already has his own glory. He works to save us that we might know his glory and that he might express his glory in us and that he might bring to its ultimate conclusion the justice, the rightness for which he is operating. In other words, God's going to write everything in your life and he's going to write everything in my life. This is what is meant by him being just. God cares for justice. Suffering is unjust. It's unfair. It's not right. It's not what's supposed to happen to you. And God is going to resolve that. And he's going to resolve it by means of the gospel's work in our world and in our church and in your life. And so we can know the justice of God. We can trust in God to be just and to be right, that one day he will make all things what they are meant to be, and he will do that in your life, that he will show his justice and his, that the fact that he is intent on justice taking place. He's going to remedy all injustice in your life one day. And the final thing, and this is the one that is the culminating piece, is that we know the love of God as well. You see, it's not just that God wants to bring an end to injustice in your life. He does. But there's something even greater, and that is that he wants you to know his love. You see, if someone came along and said, you need some money, and I'm going to give it to you, you'd be thankful. I mean, like you wouldn't, you wouldn't complain. But imagine if someone came along and said, I want to give you some money, and I want to give you my presence. I want to give you my love. You would think, now I've got something. And sometimes if we aren't careful, we think of God as just the one who will set everything right because he's so just. And we forget that God is love and that his, his desire for justice and his determination to bring about an end to injustice is not because he hates injustice. It's because he loves you. And that's why he wants to do that. And so the, the passage ends in verse 35 with this amazing statement that's here. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can distress or affliction, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or a sword? Can any of those things separate us from the love of Christ? Every single thing that you and I endure, affliction, distress, persecution, a sword, danger, fear, anxiety, all of that suffering, all of that pain and suffering threatens to separate you from the love of God. And you think, oh, they're so powerful. But the greatness and the power of God that you and I so herald is not meant to simply acknowledge that God can do whatever God wants to do. It's to acknowledge that nothing, nothing can keep God from you. 
Nothing can keep God from you. There's not one thing that can separate you from his love. And we may run from it. We may deny it. We may reject it. But we will never end the love that God has for us. And so what does that mean to us in the midst of our suffering? God's not going to walk away. God's not going to run from you. He's not going to run from your suffering, and he's not going to run from you. And so how can acknowledging that God is present with us in each of these contexts, how can we face our suffering? Four things that come from this passage that I think stand out to us. First of all, we can face suffering in each of these contexts in our lives with prayer, with groaning. Groaning. Call out. Don't be afraid. Don't think that God's got better things to do than to care for you in the midst of your suffering. Because all that God has to do is to care for you in the midst of your suffering that he might lead you to glory. (laughs) And so in the same way that creation just does one thing, it just cries out. The world that you and I live in only does one thing every single day. It cries out to God. Would you end the injustice? So you do the same thing. Do the same thing. Call out to God with groaning. And you think, I don't know what words to say. You don't need to say the right words. The Spirit intercedes for us. It's not your words that matter anyway. It's your heart. And so just fall on your face before Him and respond to your suffering with groaning. Respond with hope. You can face your suffering with hope. Hope that God will lead you through your suffering to glory, from death to glory, that he will guide you there. Face the suffering that you have with patience. With patience. Not only long for God to do what God has already said he's going to do, but wait on him. Walk with him. It can be hard for us to be patient in the midst of our suffering. We have pain. We want it to be over with. We want it to be done. If you got run over in the, in, in the street and your leg was broken, you'd, you'd want some morphine pretty quickly. You'd like for the pain to be gone. But be patient. You'll get healed up. Be patient. The suffering will end. Be patient. The pain will go away. Be patient. There's a day coming when injustice will be gone. And then finally, face suffering in each of these contexts with trust. Trust in God. Like, believe him. When he says, I'm here with you, believe him. When he says, I haven't forgotten you, believe him. When he says, I have not forsaken you, believe him. When that's true. You think, but it hurts so bad. It hurts so bad. Believe him when he says, I know. I'm with you in your hurt. It's not just that he's been there and done that. It's that he's here right now. And when he says, come to me. Come to me, trust him. When his arms are open, come into his arms. When he says, I'll hold you, trust him. When he says, I'll guard you and I'll protect you, trust him. When he says, I've given you my family, the people of God, is the place for you to find hope. Believe him. Fall into their arms of the church. When you say, you are heirs of my glory, when he says to you, you are heirs of my glory, believe him. And long for that day. You know, as Christians, we used to, we used to talk a lot. Christians used to talk a lot about longing for the resurrection for the dead, of the dead. We've, we've gotten away from that. Because we've focused our attention on just making things good here. Just, well, I don't want the resurrection of the dead because I don't want to be dead. Let's just keep things going here for a long time. But this hope of the resurrection of the dead, and a hope which leads to a longing for the resurrection of the dead meant something to people, and it means something to us. And it's not just that this life is futile. It doesn't mean that at all, that this life is futile. It means this life has meaning. It has meaning. Your life matters. The fact that God has promised to you a future inheritance and a resurrection from the dead means that your life right now matters. It means something to God. And so it's not just that he looks at your suffering and says, well, it'll get better later. He doesn't just look and say, well, there's, a, there's something good that's going to come in the future. You're sons and daughters of God right now. And while there's 
a requirement that we die in order for something to be inherited, someone has already died for us to become sons and daughters and heirs. Jesus did that for us. And so your life matters right now in this very moment. And, the, and, and what your life means right now is not merely that you can do things for some eternal benefit. It means that you can know the eternal God right where you are. See, we tend to think that heaven is just some future thing that we're going to go enjoy, but heaven is the presence of God in our lives. And there is a future that we all are headed toward us as followers of Jesus where we are raised from the dead and there is no more tear and there is no more danger and there is no more death and there is no more suffering and there is no more sin. But the good news is while there still are tears and while there still is sin and while there still is death and there still is suffering, there is still God. There is still God. And it's the same God. He is the same God that we will know perfectly in the future, that we can know presently. And so I invite you to know Him. Like know Him. Don't just look for a future inheritance. Know God as a heavenly Father now. Walk with Him. Know His love. Receive His care. Enjoy all that He gives to us here. In the midst of our suffering, let Him hold you. Don't run from Him. Don't hide from Him. Don't look somewhere else for care and comfort in the midst of your suffering. Face your suffering now with a trust in God that shows you believe what He says. That nothing, nothing can separate you from His love. Let's pray together. Father, this afternoon... We're, uh, we're thankful for your word, uh, promising us of your presence. And so as we walk through the, the hardships and the trials and the difficulties, the turmoils of our lives, we pray that we would not only believe that to be true, but we would know the reality of your presence through your indwelling spirit and through your people. And so be good to us as our Father. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.